Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 21st of July, and after a substantial news drought, I'm pleased to announce that this episode will have its fill of murder, disease, alcoholism, and Sinead O'Connor. Jeepers, until he said Sinead O'Connor, was going, I thought it was going to be autobiographical. Everything before that is just a party. <laughs> yeah. So let's kick off with just a, a small little thing. It's about Fintan O'Toole wrote an article today, and I usually try and avoid fin- talking about Fintan O'Toole uh, as much as I can, because I work on the basic assumption that if someone annoys you and you don't think their presence adds anything, you're best served by just totally ignoring their existence. A click is a click, and if you're talking about him, he's winning. But in his last article, he did something he usually doesn't do. He made a statement of fact involving statistics that are checkable. Anyway, so his article is, uh, In Bailey deflects us from the reality of violent misogyny. The subheading is, There are 40 unsolved murders of women in Ireland since 1996. The obsession with one case is a way of avoiding this truth. Immediately, my reaction upon reading that, Michael, was, 40 murders... About 25 years, population of 4 to 5 million. That doesn't sound terrible. Okay. Not off the top. So I went and I I tried to figure out how many murders there have been in Ireland in that period. And because this is Ireland, Michael, there's no unified data source on that. Because that would be too easy. That's, That's not how we do things. We like to change our methodology every 5 to 10 years just so that researchers and, you know, anyone who's interested can't actually compare things. And then we have the fact that the CSO explicitly says it doesn't trust the Gardaí statistics on crime. And we didn't have, like, a CAA fact book or fin facts or something. They don't record these things. Well, you see, I found some of them. But the problem I found there is that when you go into homicide on the CSO and you pull the data, one of the things it includes is dangerous driving leading to death. Okay. Now, that is technically homicide. But it's not murder, manslaughter, or infanticide, which is the rest of it. So a lot of the time when you you see studies of Irish homicide rates, they're including that figure. And I don't really think it gives an accurate idea of it, because particularly if we're talking about the death of women or vulnerable populations, you assume, particularly if they're unsolved, that they weren't caused due to dangerous driving. So it's actually surprisingly difficult to figure out how many murders there have been in this country, like murder, manslaughter, that kind of thing. Because if they're unsolved uh, deaths or homicides, that could have been a manslaughter that just, you know, they ran away from the scene or they hid the body or something. So you include that as well. I figure there have probably been somewhere in the region of 1,500 murders and manslaughters between 1996, which is when Finton picks his start date, and 2019. I can't pin that down exactly, because frankly I only saw this as we were beginning, and I was trying to pull this together pretty quickly. So you were talking about a period of over 20 years. Oh yeah, no, Fintan is saying since 1996 there have been 40 unsolved uh, murders of women. Now what I was able to pull was some of the um, research into the percentage of murders in Ireland that are uh, women. And that ranges from like 16% to about 35%, depending on the year. But if we take, if we assume it was 1500, and we take a rate of 16% for the amount of those that would be murder or women, we get about 240 women, which is exactly the figure that Finton uses in his article. So we'll assume that. So of that, 40% of those were unsolved. That gives us a solvage rate of about 84-85% 
So 40 were, not 40%, 40 were unsolved. 40 out of 240. So it's a, a, a solve rate of 80%. Off the top of my head, that seems to me that would that would be well up with international standards for solve rates for murders. It it depends when and where you're looking because solve rates can vary massively between different jurisdictions. Japan has the world standard in homicide solve rate because the police will torture you, and I don't mean that as a joke. I mean the Japanese police will literally torture you until you confess. They are famous for it. Uh, yeah, and there are, there are other cultural issues at work in Japan that lead to a very high solve rate as well, other than the, the, the proclivity of the police to extract confessions. And then when I looked at the British police, some years they would pull a, a solve rate of about 90%, sometimes even higher on homicides. Other times uh, in London, I mean, they fall for certain years down to about two thirds of cases. And murder cases, they would actually, or homicides, they would actually be able to solve. When you look at America, America you know, depends. You have so many different judicial systems and police systems that it it's hard to give an overall figure. But you wouldn't really. London would be very high in comparison to them. They wouldn't. I didn't generally see ninety percent clear rates. Generally, like seventy five percent up. So by international standards, we have a really good clearage rate on this. Or clearance rate on it. Also, wouldn't it be the case that internationally, I mean, it's not going to be true in every country, but generally speaking, men are far more likely to be murdered than women? Well, I mean, if we have 1,500 murders, of which 16% are women, then 84% are men. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that would, on the face of it, that would seem to be true, yes. But... Even if the numbers, even if the numbers went up, like if you, if you didn't say sixteen percent, but you said twenty percent, twenty-two percent, you're still talking a very substantial gap in the figures, and a substantial majority of the murders, murdered victims being uh, men. Yeah, men are historically and pretty consistently across different societies the primary perpetrators of and victims of violent crime. Yeah. One thing I did find interesting from looking through the old Irish uh, statistics from like 1995, how people were murdering each other. Bladed weapons come out on top. But then the second most likely way, uh, the second most utilised method of murdering someone was physical battery. And that there was a separate heading for blunt objects and things like that. So that was just your hands, which seems very hard to do. Yeah, pretty horrible. I mean, to physically beat somebody to death. Yeah. Not just, one has to imagine that a number of these are going to be people who are on the ground and getting kicked, boots in the head job rather than, I mean, to punch someone to death, that would be incredibly difficult. One interesting thing from the American data I found was because there are so many systems and some cities are way, way worse than others, there are places in America where there are violently disparate solve rates for white people and black people. Like there are places where the solve rate for the homicides of black people were you know, 50 to 60 percent, and then white people would be you know, 70, 80 percent. And is there any speculative reason given about why that might be the case? Apparently, now, there's an argument that there's racism involved. There may be, depending on where it is. But there's also the argument that urban black people, particularly, are far more likely to be killed by a stranger than white people. Yeah. The majority of people are, are killed by someone they know. Oftentimes not a blood relative, although that is common enough, but a friend. Not much of a friend. No, not a great friend, if they murder you. Unless that's what you're into. 
Uh, and there was that man in Germany who was into that, of course. Well, that was being killed and being eaten. So that was that was a fetish thing. I think we can class that as its own thing. Yeah, I, 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 did, did he actually sometimes break the stats down according to motivation for for murder? Did you see any of those? Yeah, I, I did for Ireland. Um, rage and arguments and anger, unsurprisingly, is, is the top one. Uh, a lot of murders and homicides in general are um, not unprompted, but unplanned. They are responses. So you're talking about uh, disputed answers in Trivial Pursuit, games of Monopoly, that kind of thing. Yeah, something happens, someone gets angry, starts throwing punches, you know, someone grabs something things get out of hand. The sort of things that perhaps, you know, had you been, you know, a little bit of time to think about it, you may not have thought it was appropriate to smash in your neighbor's skull with a lamp. Yeah, again, I'm not sure if the stats would speak to this, but I think these are often cases, at least when looking for the reportage in the newspapers of these cases, where alcohol or other substances are often involved. Yeah, in, in those particular types, very much so. And then one of the other most common ones was at revenge. Yeah, revenge, that struck me as odd. I mean, you don't think of the Irish as being like Sicilians desperately outseating vendetta. But revenge? Revenge for what, I wonder? A failure in love? You took my woman? You took my job? You took my land? You took that field that I wanted? That I wasn't able to find research on. I'm sure there is research on it out there, just didn't come across any. But anyway, the the point I wanted to make here is that any unsolved murder is terrible for those involved. It's terrible for the family and it's terrible for justice. But internationally, Ireland actually comes quite across quite well in how often it solves murders. And then when you look at the murders of women, they are a small percentage of the total and unsolved murders are a small percentage of that, which again, that's not to in any way excuse it. It's obviously a tragedy. But if you're going to say that, you know, this is a horrible internalized misogyny, that people are constructing elaborate excuses to avoid coming into contact with and having to deal with that truth, the stats don't really bear that out. Yeah, if you're going to start constructing some kind of great overarching social analysis on the basis of these statistics. So you'd want these statistics to be spe- saying something rather different than they appear to be doing. But it's Finton too. Exactly, it's Finton. He wanted to make a point about misogyny. And of course, if you say there have been 40 unsolved murders or homicides of women in this jurisdiction, that sounds terrible. But then you have to start saying things like, since 1995, and out of this many murders, out of this many murders. And that compares this way internationally. You need some kind of context, and Finton studiously avoids giving that context. There is a slight implication in Finton's piece, and I'm not sure if it was an intentional. If you start talking about how these murders are unsolved, and then violent misogyny, are you implying that the murders are a result of violent misogyny? Or are you implying that the failure to solve those murders are a result of violent misogyny? Because if you're not trying to imply that, then why are you talking about unsolved murders? Well, no, I think the point is well made. Because if you're going to talk about misogyny was driving violence against women, I no doubt that there are misogynists out there who are violent against women. That's I would take that as a given. Uh, what percentage or proportion of the population are? That's another question. But the way he frames this, he gives the, this this number, which he perceives to be a shocking number, and in each individual case, it is a shocking. St- 
in instance. But as a statistic, he gives it to me as a shocking one because it's unsolved. And that does carry with it the strong implication that, there, that misogyny is in some way complicit with the fact that they are unsolved, which either is a general comment about society that we don't care so much about women, we don't care so much about their murders or violence against them, so we don't push it, or that the guard, the guardee or the DPP or the justice system is in some way institutionally misogynistic and less caring and less engaged in bringing these, case, these cases to justice and finding out who the perpetrators were. But we know we have this, this solve rate for homicide of women. One thing he doesn't talk about, and actually one thing we didn't bring, I didn't bring up and I should have, was what's the homicide clearance rate overall? Because, Michael, if there is some misogyny here, not only will there be these unsolved cases, the clearance rate will be lower. Yeah, the assumption you work on, if there, if misogyny was driving a lower a low rate of solving for violent crimes against women, that you would expect that the solve rate for crimes against men would be higher. So, as we said, we had 240 homicides or, sorry, women who met violent ends. I'm not sure if women's aid have included death by dangerous driving in there. That's where Finton got his statistic from. If they did, that seems a bit misleading, and might reduce the number by a bit anyway. So, we said there we have about 84% clearance rate on that. The guards in 2019, um, so sorry, this would have been 2018, because the figures were released in 2019. The murder-manslaughter clearance rate in the country, in that year, was 72%. Right. Substantially lower than the clearance rate for homicide of women. Now, obviously, these are slightly different. This is a one-year statistic, and the uh, clearance rate for women is over many years. But I think it does demonstrate a little bit something about the rate itself. Well, it certainly doesn't seem to suggest that there is some kind of massive gap. No, I mean, if you were to do a Fintano tool on this, you could actually suggest that there are more resources given to the homicide of women. And you know, if there were, that wouldn't necessarily surprise me. It's, it's a totally unsupported statement. I'm just making an example of what Fintan O'Toole does. He just finds something and then goes, this is this. I've no evidence to back it up. But it sounds, on the face of it, like it might just about be right. And even if it's not, he could, he can work well in a headline. All of this is basically Fintan just trying to chase a headline. Because this thing came out yesterday or the day before and it's about Ian Bailey but it's only about Ian Bailey because Sinead O'Connor was talking about Ian Bailey because Sinead O'Connor interviewed Ian Bailey which is a bizarre pairing. Well you could call it an interview Gary but I think you're being a tad charitable to call it an interview. It was one of the most bizarre pieces of interviewing I've seen done in a Sunday newspaper for a long time and shall we say the journalistic methodologies it left a bit of a bad taste in the mouth. I mean, at this stage, for people who have been following the case for many years have probably already formed an opinion about who was responsible or not responsible for the death of uh, Sophie uh, Tuscona, was it? Tuscona Plantier, is it? And, uh, though, and then others have recently come to the case either with the Sky or the Netflix uh, series, and they will have formed an opinion on that. But at the end of the day, the man was an interviewer, an interviewee, and he has, it would seem fairly obvious, issues with alcohol. I don't know, did, did you find it a bit 
Well, let's put it, say, unethical, to put a, a nice word on it. So, yeah, just, just to give the background on this. So, Sinead O'Connor goes down to meet Ian Bailey to interview him about the murder of uh, Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. Ian Bailey has said that she told him she wanted to meet him because she wanted to put some of his poems to music. Ian Bailey, after all, being a poet. Have you heard the poetry? It's not great. Oh, God, Gary. It's not great. It is not good. So that would be that would be one thing. If that, was, if that was the case, she lied to him to get the interview. She then goes and she meets him, and he starts drinking. Now, if you go down to interview someone and they start drinking, that's not your issue. You haven't caused that to happen. And if they say something when they're drunk that they regret, that's not on you. You can faithfully record it and write it. The problem, I think, here is this. Sinead O'Connor doesn't drink. But she's a Muslim. She can't drink. She herself has said that she paid for the meal. So she paid for Bailey's alcohol. And Bailey has said that she was plying him with drink, that she kept offering him drink. Bailey has, as you said, well-known problems with alcohol. It would probably be fair to say if he's not an alcoholic by the official definition, he's in that area. At the very least, we know she paid for someone who is effectively an alcoholic to drink. That is ethically questionable. And then if she was trying to ply him with drink as well, and people would say, well, you know, he could have just not drank. You're like, but yes, in the same way, any substance abuser could just not use those substances. But addicts don't tend to, you know, have a great ability to just say no. No, it's kind of one of the things that comes with being an addict. Yeah, so, yeah, technically you can go to someone and you just keep offering to buy them drugs or whatever. And if they take them, well, that's their fault. But you're kind of a dick, at the very least. Yeah. So she does this, and she goes down, she buys him alcohol. I think on just that face, that that's enough to... Like, if, if in Gripped, one of our guys had come to us and said, I need a budget because I'm going to meet someone with a substance abuse problem, and I want to be able to buy him that substance, it wouldn't have gotten out of editorial. Just, there's no way we would have signed off on it, because it is ethically odious. On the face of, and that may just be me because I, I, you know, I did some work in this area, and I've, I've dealt a lot with people in this area. And taking it, this strikes me as exploitative. So you have that, and then you have the actual interview she conducted with him. And Michael, it's shit. It's weird. It's bizarre. It's mostly just O'Connor insinuating things about Bailey, and then saying that the fact that Bailey is not more concerned is to blame for the fact the murder is unsolved. Which is not how the legal system works. No, <laughs> that's reasonable. I mean, I don't know, Gary. Did you see the video clip that she released on Twitter? It, it was, shall we say, it was, it was bizarre and distasteful. And to to say the very least, for someone who has embraced religion at this stage and religion, which specifically prohibits the consumption of alcohol, it was a remarkably little sympathy. I mean, it was a gloating rather nasty, rather odd thing. And why do the Sunday Independent think that she's a journalist and this was a good idea in the first place? Um, Gary, isn't it the case that you talked about it's a click, every click is, is, you avoid it if you don't want to give them support. This this is a, a, a confection which is about nothing else except clicks. This is pure clickbait. You're putting together at this time when the man is very prominently in the public eye because 
there would be two documentaries about him. Putting him in a story about a murder, which is unsolved, and you're throwing Sinead O'Connor into the mix. Who's not going to click on that story? The actual story itself, the actual interview itself is bizarre, just odd. And the questions that she chose us to ask and kick off with. I, I also had a problem with the, the way the independents sold this. You had a lot of Ireland's premier journalists selling this as a you know a blockbuster interview, a, a great thing that you had to see. But the independent, the subheadline was Sinead O'Connor joined a sozzled Ian Bailey. Now, again, describing him as sozzled, it's a bit dubious. You just, you would think at the time that went to editorial and were like, we got an alcoholic drunk and then asked him weird questions. Have we stepped over a line here? And yes, I know it's Ian Bailey and he's not the fondest man in Ireland, but just as a general principle, should we be doing things like this? And then, I mean, just, just again on the actual interview itself. So most of it is just Sinead's insinuations. But then she gets to the actual questions. And the first question she notes in the written piece was, were you always heterosexual or did you ever explore the other side? The second question was, do you like yourself? Calling Dr. Freud. And it's just, it, it's, it's bizarre. And now there seems to be some weird feud between them where O'Connor is going on social media and she's mocking him pretending to cry and yeah, yeah. imitating him and then what was it she said she said I'm I'm such a terrible lady she keep she kept giving me drinks she lifted my hand and forced it down my throat per me and then pretends to cry and, like, and she's and she's mocking and mocking him and this. the whole thing as you said Gary begins with a lie I mean it's quite a clever lie he is a man who we have seen loves to inflict his poetry on people. He's obviously very fond of his poetry. It's very important to him and his idea of himself. He's constantly described as a poet and a writer. Now, speaking as a man who's been writing bad poetry for most of his life, I can tell bad poetry and his poetry is pretty It's dire. But the thing is, Gary, if you are Shadir Khan, you and somebody comes, you come along to someone who is as he is, and say you want to put your your I want to put your poetry to music. That is such a bang on the nose turn on for your ego and your desperate desire for people to hear your poetry to like your poetry. That was absolute. That was a scud missile straight into his ego. And but it was also it had to be a lie. There's no way in the world that she ever had any notion or intention of doing so. This is, Ian Bailey has said this. Sinead O'Connor said he was lying, and she she had never said that to him. So, who knows? Yes, I mean, between the two of them, I'm not sure how much truth lies anywhere, but the whole thing is just a bit sleazy, it's a bit low, and it's a bit depressing most of all, I suppose, Gary. Yet again, it's a commentary that we seem to be constantly engaged in, the kind of meta story thing, that that is the status of our leading Sunday newspaper, in fact, the leading newspaper in the country. The quality newspaper, by the way. Not a red top, not a tabloid. This is our leading quality newspaper, and this is what they do. I, I, to be honest, I did not like the her, her little video where she mocked Bailey and imitated him saying that she was forcing drink down his uh, throat. It was very much a sort of, well, you know, just say no, kids. Yeah. You know, no one is making you drink. I understand you have a crippling addiction to this, which is 
led to you having extended legal trouble about it. But I'm just offering it to you. You don't have to say yes. And if, you know, if you do, that's your own fault. But by the way, I'll pay for it, you know, if you want to. <laughs> you know, just, you know, if you, if you had something you wanted to get. Which at the very least makes her an, an enabler, a facilitator. And that's the very least. Also, do you know what? I mean, we haven't touched on the fact that this was essentially done almost like an entertainment piece. In the context of what it was supposed to be about, ultimately, it was incredibly disrespectful for the fact that at this stage, whatever, 20 years ago, a rather beautiful, talented young woman was savagely murdered. And this is, this is now where we are. This is how it's treated, as this kind of odd circus freak, grand guignol type of news reporting. It's horrible. If there was something they could have extracted from it that was of extreme newsworthiness, at least they could say, well, we got this. And you know, there was some bu- public good served by this. Yeah. When your first question to someone like Bailey is, have you ever been a homosexual? Did the Independent not have any interest in what questions she was going to ask him, Bailey? Well, we all know about those gays, Gary. They're obviously, they go around be- beating up people, particularly women, because they're fundamentally misogynistic and driven. I don't get that question. If he says yes, what do you do? <laughs> like, I mean, before you thought he was a murderer. Oh, God. Like, what, what do you want from that question, though? I don't get it. I don't even know why you would ask. Well, I took it to mean, and again, maybe I'm projecting here, that the implication was that he was engaged in some, he was in some kind of, his life was a a desperate act of repression rather than sublimation. And that uh, there was some kind of, I don't know, going back to Finton, some kind of deep-rooted misogyny, which could express itself in rage because of his repressed sexuality. But again, I mean, I may be picking the bones out of something there that's not there at all. The whole thing is distasteful and does nothing to advance our understanding of what happened and does very little, if anything, to show any kind of respect for the dreadful thing that did happen to the woman that lost her life. But and now, now it seems to be coming tabloid filter. Like, there's been, I'd say, three or four stories purely on this in the Irish Mirror. And things like... Uh, Here's one. Fans go wild at Sinead O'Connor's impression of Ian Bailey. A singer hits back at drink claims in mocking video. Then there's another one about legendary singer Sinead O'Connor arranging to hand over unseen Ian Bailey interview footage to Gardaí, where it says that she's agreed to show, um, to give them the footage from the interview, which she didn't give to the Sunday Independent, she says, because when she spoke to Gardaí, their attitude was they would like to see it before deciding for themselves whether or not it should be made public. Which sounds like Sinead O'Connor went to the guards and just went, by the way, I've got these images of uh, Ian Bailey, would you like to see them? And then when the guards said, we would, yes. Maybe not Sinead O'Connor, but someone who knows quite a lot about Sinead O'Connor's activity went to the Irish Mirror. Still, Sinead has a new job, and I suppose she must be happy for that. She writes like a child. Yes, she does. Sinead O'Connor is not so a musician I've ever particularly liked but nor one I had an active dislike for. And she's written some good stuff. And musicians and singers can be quite um, eloquent. And then I've read her work, and it is like a child wrote it. Uh, And a very, very self-indulgent child. There's a lot of, I, I did this, and I felt this. And it's sort of, I met this man, widely believed to have murdered a woman. I didn't feel good about that. Yeah, well, it's basically... 
she's not her brother. Mm. Uh, I'm referring neither to the accountant nor the sculptor there, but the very fine novelist. Uh, she is. I have to say, I thought the line was it the 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 line in the cobra back in the day, and that is a very long time ago now. Was a fantastic thing, a fantastic album. And back when I was in college, we were all playing it. But I don't think I've ever listened to a Sinead O'Connor album. Well, as I say, if you got to start with one, I would recommend The Line in the Cobra. Ah, she's no Kate Bush. <laughs> she is not Kate Bush, no. She doesn't have the hair. <laughs> so, yes, that is why Ian Bailey is in the news again. Yeah. Because you know what this country needed, Michael? Another round of talking about Ian Bailey. But you know, Gary, it's not actually why Ian Bailey's in the news, because it's not really Ian Bailey in the news, is it? That's the, the, the bottom of this story. Sinead O'Connor is in the news, and that's really what this was going to be all always, was always going to be about. And then, what was it? She, she handed over the footage, and then she sent out a tweet warning Bailey, Michael, that, um, warning Bailey, that after she had given over her footage to the Gardaí, the Gardaí were watching every word and every lie and every abuse of women that comes out of his devil mouth. Oh, and then God. she said, seen, all in caps lock, with an exclamation mark. Okay, I suppose, does that mean we can expect the DPP to, to be acting on the file very anytime soon? Sinead has cracked the case. Either that or a celebrity with known mental health problems is perhaps not the person you should get to do something like this. Perhaps not. Perhaps get a journalist to do it. That's that's old-fashioned, Michael. Very old-fashioned. And nothing like the clickbait. You want an example, Gary, of actual misogyny? Since we were talking about, uh, that seems to be the, the theme du jour. I don't know if you were following any of the activity online yet again about J.K. Rowling. Uh, for those who don't know, J.K. Rowling has taken a position on the transgender issue, which many trans activists not, I should point out, a lot of necessarily trans people, because trans activists don't necessarily represent the uh, the opinions of all, certainly not all trans people, uh, transgender people. Um, and as a result of the stand she, she took, and I would have to say, it was an extremely gentle, nuanced, compassionate, understanding statement that she made. She has been the object of some of the most horrific abuse. And there was, an, a, yet again, an example in which she tweeted, together we will win. And in response to it, she got, amongst many others, a tweet saying, I wish you a very nice pipe bomb in the mailbox. I, I did see it. And just things have gotten a little bit heated the last few days between transgender activists and pretty much everyone else, because a book uh, just came out that has kind of set them off called um, Trans. When Ideology Meets Reality by Helen Joyce, who is with The Economist. But we won't hold that against her. And so that's, people have gotten a bit riled up about that because, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. I did see the, the J.K. Rowling thing. I also saw the response from Mermaids, the UK transgender charity, one of the, one of the major transgender charities. I, well, I thought it actually was a wonderful example. Uh, maybe you, you or I will, will read it out so that people can hear it. It's a perfect example of the playbook in situations like this. They have a worked out playbook of how to deal with these situations and how to deal with people and how to reformulate and refocus the question in this incredibly uh, dramatic way. They catastrophize uh, everything. They 
have completely under you know the concept creep. We're always talking about concept creep. The concept creep of the notion of violence, and suddenly J.K. Rowling, because she publishes a tweet where somebody's wishing her a pipe bomb in her mailbox, is in fact the perpetrator of violence, and she is the bad person in this whole. It's worth pointing out mermaids. Until not until recently, were one of the principal suppliers of information and training to a lot of uh, governmental organisations and NGOs and charities and things in the in the UK. Were mermaids responsible for giving training to the UK police force? They were. They were. They've been highly involved in the training of um, government departments, NGOs, universities. They would fall into roughly the same space that Tenai would in Ireland except they've been far more successful at um, drawing in outside agencies. So the, the tweet that Mermaids put up in response to J.K. Rowling sharing that someone had wished her a happy pipe bomb in her mailbox was, it's sad to yet again see a children's author casting trans people as a threat to women. It is a despicable manipulation of a public opinion to hurt a minority group. Shame. We condemn any threats and fear this latest book-selling campaign will lead to further attacks. And then it just says trans lives. Yeah, I'm imagining that's a typo. There should be attacks on trans lives. If you saw that statement on its own, it sounds like J.K. Rowling is threatening people. Yeah. As opposed to going, someone threatened to pipe bomb me because I spoke about this issue. Casting trans people as a threat to women. Well, I don't know if the author of the tweet was a a trans person. I have no idea who that person was. I don't know if they know. But certainly, I mean, somebody who's, who's, who's wishing a woman a pipe bomb in the mailbox, it seems to me, represents a threat to women. At least to one specific woman, anyway. And how is this... And Gary, you and I have followed this to some degree and looked at the social, me- the social media commentary on this. The level of violence and misogyny and it is no other word you can use it is unbridled misogyny that is directed at women who take a shall we say a gender critical position on trans issues it's shocking and whatever is going on particularly i would say when you they're coming from say some of the lesbian groups there is a pure on alloyed misogyny at work and the and the, the the language is violent and very often sexually violent yeah there's a lot of you know fuck turfs punch turfs death to turfs which for, yeah. is uh trans exclusionary radical feminists i found out today michael actually that i am on a a great number of twitter block lists uh declaring me to be a turf because i've written on this area and i, I think it was involving like things like the icgp's guidelines also, you did interview that lady who used to be in Stonewall and is now a founder member of LGB. The LGB Alliance, yeah, we, we did do that interview. Um, to be honest, I just found it kind of amusing because I'm not a feminist to begin with, let alone a radical one. Yeah. Gary as a trans radical feminist. Gary the radical feminist. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I got, to, I got to the trans exclusionary stuff and I was like, well, I mean, maybe you could, you could argue that in bad faith. But I'm not a feminist. I've never said anything of the sort. No. It's just it's just like these people don't care, Michael. But again, notice, and this is, a, 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 I think we adverted it in the last 
podcast when we're talking a little bit about this. We condemn any threats. So that's right in the middle of it. We condemn any, so they can happily say, oh, well, we condemned the threat. You know, we, we yeah, you can't accuse us. You know, we condemn any threats. And fear, there's an odd conjunction here, isn't it, as a sentence piece of construct, sentence construction. We condemn any threats and fear this latest book selling campaign will lead to further attacks on trans lives. Again, the implication is further attacks on trans, on trans lives. So we're taking it as a given that attacks on trans lives are something which is just an endemic in society. This is a, is a, a systemic reality. And this is just going to amplify that further. This is going to lead to further attacks on it. it but this is an absolute classic piece of the playbook. I, I, you have to enjoy the sort of someone threatened to hurt me. You highlighting that is is violence. Shame. Shame. You were putting a um. You were putting a minority at risk. And the weird thing there is that by doing that, you involve the transgender community. Whereas before, it's just a nutter. Yeah. Who may or may not be trans, but it's just a single individual. When you start trying to say this is anything systemic. You bring that person into the group. So, I'm not sure that's a wise idea either. Like, I don't think the public are going to get on side with that. No, I don't think that... It, as, a, as a way of garnering popularity with the, the British public, or indeed the, the, the book-reading public worldwide, attacking the author of the Harry Potter books and saying, you know, we, want, you, we would happily see you get a pipe bob in your mailbox is actually the way to get people to like you. I think that, you know, not for, not for me to advise these people on their marketing or their PR, but maybe they need some help with their PR there. Because I think that's, that's, I don't think it's a fruitful strategy. Well, yes, but you know, you're a cynic. I am, I am. I'm a, I'm a dog. So just to, to end with, I, because it is me, have been putting together weekly stats on COVID-19. I reported these on for a while on Gripped in relation to the vaccination program, but we stopped that when the HSE hack and that just took out everything. But they've started to report the vaccination stats again. What they haven't started reporting again are the HPSC weekly breakdowns of COVID. Now, what those did, they were the weekly reports on COVID that they put out. They contained the CF4, the deaths, the breakdown of deaths, where people died, all of that stuff. Yes. They stopped when the HSE were hacked. They have not started up again. They were immensely useful. They were one of the only sources of detailed data on the actual impact of COVID. Because, I mean, the HPSC report would tell you things like how many of these are healthcare workers. Stuff like that. All of that good stuff. But they've been gone since then. But you can actually work out roughly what the CFO is of COVID using the um, case and debt data on the COVID-19 GeoHive hub. Long-term listeners will know what the CFO is, but for those who don't, the CFO is the case fatality ratio. Effectively, what that is, is it's the confirmed COVID-19 cases against the deaths. You also have the IFO, which is the infection fatality ratio, which is all those who have had covid both those who have had confirmed tests and those who have been asymptomatic and have not been tested, which is to say that the IFO is an estimate because you don't know how widespread the disease is in people you aren't testing, so you have to guess. The HSE has never put together an IFO 
for COVID-19 that I've been able to find. They've also been pretty bad at putting together even a CFR. The point of the CFR is a CFR can tell us effectively how lethal COVID-19 is. The CFR of COVID-19 was 1.8%. But then when you look at it over the last couple of weeks, you are really moving down. You're into uh, sub 1% numbers. You're into instead of you know 2.1% or the 1.8. And this is what we would have expected as the vaccine program became more and more extended. And we should point out that Fine. I mean, that's that's credit where credit is due, that we are now vaccinating large numbers of people very quickly. The the vaccination program is finally seen to be working pretty well. There are still glitches, there are still issues that can be addressed in it, but we are now vaccinating at a rate, um, I think, the fastest in the world at the minute, which is a good thing. And the, the CFR is inevitably... We would, we had hoped, and we are now saying that CFR would fall in the in the in the context of a population where growing numbers of people were fully vaccinated. All right, there's days we're doing fifty thousand a day. There's about two point two million people in the country who are now fully vaccinated. There's another five hundred thousand on top of that who've at least won a vaccination. There's one hundred fifty thousand who've got single dose vaccinations as well. So, like, you're you're not far from two and a half million people in the country are being fully vaccinated. And the thing there is, it could be due to the vaccinations, they're absolutely playing a part, but because all of these weekly reports have stopped, it's very difficult to actually pull these things apart and see what's happening. I know reporters were struggling there to try and find information on uh, how many of the people in hospital for COVID were vaccinated against those who weren't, because that's very important uh, information. Because what we want, what we would expect to see if the vaccines are working and they're working at a high rate is a breakage of the link between numbers going up of cases and hospitalizations and deaths. So yes. numbers could increase dramatically, but hospitalizations and deaths would stay relatively low. But it's very difficult to tell what's actually happening because even the low level of data that the HSE were releasing they're now basically not releasing anymore. Little bits and pieces are being released, but any t- time they're questioned, it's just the hack has caused a problem, and that's it. And do you th- think that they're being full and frank in that, or do you think there's uh, do you think believe there's another agenda at work? I suspect that in relation to public facing statistics on COVID nineteen, there isn't an urgency uh, to get them there. I mean, I was looking at the the Dutch. COVID-19 figures uh, there. And what I'll do is I'll include a link to the Dutch government's COVID-19 webpage. Oh, their website is fantastic. I mean, not only is it fantastic, it's in Dutch and English as well. So the Dutch COVID-19 website, the English version of it is better than the English version of the Irish government's website. And the difference there, Michael, is that we speak English as a first language. Yeah, I don't know why they don't do that. Just showing off, I think. Just, just so you can see it. Yeah. But you're, you're going through it and you're looking at these stats and it's not perfect. There's always stuff there that you'd like to see that isn't. But nearly everything you would want to see is there and you can click through it and you can pull up data and you can get, you know, regional outbreaks and you can tell, I mean, you can go 
not only how much COVID is in the country, but what variants of COVID are in the country. Yeah. And and how are they growing and, you know, what is going on? And that just is not something we do here. So I suspect there is, um, there's no great rush on that. One of the reasons, or one of the things I've noticed over the COVID-19 pandemic is there's different ways you can deal with these things. You can either work on a top-down basis where you tell people what they're doing and they do it and you don't really care what they think about it. Or you can go from bottom-up where you explain to people what they should be doing and the reasons for that and the relevant risk factors, but you trust them to make their own decision. And that's a bit of a continuum. Different countries will pick different things between it. But the Irish Day has since this started kind of worked on... It nearly seems that they are explicitly trying to avoid informing people of the relative risk to uh, any particular sector of people. Yeah. It's very hard to get the Irish government to talk about what are the risks to people who are 25 to 30? Or what are the risks to people who are overweight? Mm-hmm. And the overweight thing, I actually think, is quite important. We, the two primary things which are a risk factor for COVID-19. The first is age, and it's age by an incredible weight. Coming way behind it is obesity. But I haven't heard a single government official since this started saying, you know, it might be good for people to make sure they're at a healthy weight. That's something you can control and is actually going to have an impact on your survival rate. It is, Gary, except that if you're obese and speaking as a person who's fat, I mean... Frankly, it's going to take you a year to get to get from where you are to a healthy weight, and that might be a good thing to do, certainly. But it's not something that, in the context of a of a pandemic raging around you, you're 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 going to uh, pay a lot of attention to. Because you know, right now, what can I do? You're right, Michael. It would only be useful in the very rare circumstance where a pandemic situation were to go on for you know year and a half. <laughs> of course, and 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 longer, but I think that uh, uh, the idea that I, I think you could tell people. I mean, certainly, I would say it would be advisable to keep to to remind people consistently. But being obese is going to kill you anyway. This is just another way it's going to kill you. But also that maybe it would be a good idea to remind obese people because just be even if nothing else. To, that they should be very, very careful indeed, because even if you don't have asthma, if you don't have underlying conditions, if you're not elderly, you know, being obese is a, is, is, a, is a big factor. I think that as regards other stuff, I wonder, we now see there is a, a big push on for good or for, to get people aged 18 to 24 18, to get the vaccine. Um, over 30s have been targeted as well. Now, I, there are certainly good arguments why you might want to do that. But regarding the whole issue of what is the, what is the, the actual numerical threat to somebody of that age, to their health? What is the reluctance to get into that? I, I think it, fairly obvious that if you get into those kinds of details, you may get into numbers which people will say, well, frankly speaking, that's not much of a risk. And 
I know certainly younger people that I've heard say that they, they, they won't take the AstraZeneca because they think there may be a risk to the AstraZeneca, but the actual risk of COVID to them is so small that if they're going to get vaccinated, they're going to wait until they can get a Pfizer or Moderna because they think it's safer. And when they read the, when they do the risk analysis, they say, well, I, very little risk to the the AstraZeneca or to the Pfizer or the MRA, but AstraZeneca has consequences in some cases for younger people. So I'm going to wait. And they, underneath all of this, Gary, do you not think that we've got to also just fundamentally got to a point where the language we have to protect the vulnerable and the one who is the vulnerable seems to evolve and change a little bit, and the reasons why we have to keep. The lockdown have evolved and changed. We are a long, long way from the days of flattening the curve. And the problem is, behind all of this, there is a question. And the question simply is, what level of virulence, what level of fatalities do we consider to be acceptable for us to return to what was normal life before the pandemic? In other words, very simply, brutally put, at what point do we say, okay, when there are X number of people dying, only that number, then we're going to say it's okay. We can we can deal with this just as a normal society. And I think there's a great reluctance to that because it seems to be saying that we're we're happy that these people, you know, people are going to die, but that's okay. And that I think they they're terrified of having to say something that sounds like that. I I think we'll work on the assumption that no death is acceptable. Because no one wants a situation where they open things up and then some 17-year-old drops while playing on the garbage. Without having to go back and plough fields that we've ploughed before, Gary, there has perhaps been, from the beginning, a lack of balance in the approach to communicating what goes on when you have a lockdown and what the consequences of locking down activity are. There, There is the simple economic and as we have said before, you, there is a mass of data out there that if you make people poorer, you, you will affect their lifespan. You will affect their life outcomes. That poorer people will die younger and they, they will die of diseases they wouldn't otherwise die. If you, if, if, if you make the country poor, if you affect, if you simply, if you affect the, the, the amount of resources available to support your health service, that's going to affect outcomes. But leaving aside the, the long-term effects that funding the health service might have, just the short-term effects of the the procedures that have been delayed or have been cancelled in hospitals, the people who are not visiting doctors are not going to their GPs with conditions or with symptoms that they would otherwise do. And because of that, diseases or conditions are being missed that are going to have serious consequences for people, either in their general health or possibly even fatally. So there is a balance and you can't simply say, we're, we're going to wait until we have no fatalities from COVID because the consequences of imposing a kind of lockdown for that to happen, and that probably will never happen anyway, are going to see other people who are going to die of other things as a consequence of the lockdown. There was a paper in um, The Lancet. It came out in July of last year. And that tried to model, this was a UK paper, the model how many cancer deaths they would see due to lockdowns and the pandemic and 
um, because cancer screenings were suspended and routine diagnostic work was being pushed back. Same thing happened in Ireland. We had Irish doctors come out and talk about how they were concerned about this and it was going to kill people. And we thought, you know, that's a worthwhile trade-off. So they said in the UK within five years, looking at just four types of um, cancers, they would expect to see about 3,600 additional deaths. So that'll be replicated in Ireland. It'll be at a different scale, obviously. But yes, you're right. We'll absolutely see deaths due to these things, delays in dealing with medical treatment or medical um, issues of all kinds. But that's the public have been broadly supportive of the lockdown measures. And I don't think that's something that the public really have in mind. So it's not really damaging. You could make an argument for that when there was such a strong risk. But when you look at the, the age breakdown of COVID deaths, like I'm looking at the HPSC, the last report they put out. So this is from May. Yeah. Under 45s, Michael. There had been, since the start of the pandemic to May of 2021, 54 people under 45 years of age in Ireland had died due to COVID-19. That is 1.1% of all the deaths. Of people under the age of? 45. Under the age of 45. And we're now going into a scenario where increasingly people in that age bracket are going to be vaccinated. So if we were to re, if, if you'd like, if we were to rerun that period, you would imagine that that number would fall again. Yeah, one would expect. And then in the 45 to 54 age group, it was only 1.8%. So let's say you take that together. That is relatively a minuscule portion of deaths. And the problem there is, well, obviously, they're all individually tragedies. When we start getting down to these low numbers, the trade-offs become more and more substantial relative to the risk. Because when we're talking about, you know, 85 plus years, over 2,000 deaths, that's just a different ball game. Yeah. And now you're talking about people being vaccinated. The most at-risk people are vaccinated. We're moving down into increasingly young cohorts. And when we get into them, like... Do you remember when the the blood clot issue arose, Michael? Yes, I do. You and I said it was decided in Ireland that we would stop while there was a review of this. And we said this was a pointless decision because the risk profile of those blood clots was relative to the risk of COVID absolutely acceptable. It was absolutely a better thing to keep that going and it would save lives in the end. As you get to the younger and younger cohorts... COVID is less and less of a threat. And by the time you're in 18-year-olds, yes, things that, you know, when you were vaccinating 65-year-olds wouldn't have even been concerns are now roughly on par with the benefit you're offering to people. And so we're starting to hear a lot about long COVID. I still haven't seen anything which has been able to demonstrate to me that long COVID is, as a standalone and unique thing, in existence, as opposed to post-viral fatigue or hysteria or... Yeah, and Gary, the fact is that it may well be a thing, but we probably won't know until quite some time. And, for example, uh, reading uh, um, about the the Spanish flu, I was one thing the things I was surprised to discover was that in the 
period after the uh, the great Spanish flu pandemic, they discovered that people who suffered from the from and recovered from the Spanish flu had a much higher incidence of Parkinson's disease. And that seems it's, I don't know why, and it's not it's, it's not for me. It's not important why. So it it may well be that there is something, but we're right now we're not in a position to make any kind of call out of that. And I know that it's widely it's being widely discussed. But if you look at the doctors talking about it, there is far from unanimity about this. Many, the experts are taking again, as they have done throughout all this pandemic, very different views on it. But Gary, I want to go back to something there, which we talked about maybe oh, a couple of months ago. When we were getting into the process of vaccinating uh, the population properly, and we were, we had now got a sense that we were in the process of going towards a point where the pandemic was going to be brought under control. And we're, I, I, one thing I, I said, it is incumbent on the government now to start changing the way they talk to the population. That one of the things they're going to have to start talking about is to manage expectations on both ends. Manage expectations of people who think, okay, we reach a magic number, 50% of the population is vaccinated, we're just going to throw up in the rest, everything is going to be uh, Liberty Hall, free for free fall for everything. So you're going to have to tell people, okay, this is how it's going to be done. It's going to, But on the other side, there should be a conversation with people saying, you know, we're also going to come to a point where even though people are still going to hospital, even though some people are going to the ICU, even though some people are still dying, we are going to move, at, a st at even when that's happening, we're going to move back to a relatively normal life. And just to get people used to the idea that we are engaged in a balancing act, we are engaged in a series of trade-offs. And at a certain point, the trade-off between the lives saved through lockdown and lives that are lost through lockdown, the balance will change. You could argue and I think it was that a year ago, when it was particularly what was happening in the hospitals and especially in, in, in the care homes, that the, the balance was, was in one direction. When you had large sections of the population of elderly people, that all of them, the elderly population was unvaccinated, non-protected. That was the way the balance, the balance was in one direction. Now, that point is going to come if it hasn't already arrived, it's coming soon, where the where the trade-off is no longer a positive one. But they need to talk about this. They need to explain this to people because otherwise I meet people who really do have internalized the idea, like you said, that no fatality is acceptable. That And I think long COVID has been brought into this mix as well. And this says, oh, well, People are getting long COVID and young people are getting long COVID and we don't know. Even allowing for that, even allowing the long COVID may be a real thing and may have effects, that has to be put into the calculation. We have to, and, st and we still have to say, to the, the government has to say to the population, okay, we are we're going to reach a point where we're going to exit, but it's not going to be perfect. Because, Gary, is it not prob the, the probable truth that COVID is now going to be endemic in the population? This is not something which is, it's not something like, say, SARS or, or, or swine fever, which will come and then will go and then will just disappear. This is much more likely to become like a seasonal flu, that we're going to get booster shots. We're going to, it's going to be something we will live with. And every year, probably some people will die of this. 
But we can't live in permanent lockdown as a consequence of that. And it's incumbent on the government to start to talk about that in some way. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that that this is, is now endemic. And it's going to have to be dealt with on that basis. But you're right, we haven't talked about it. We haven't talked about relative risk. I mean, I saw one of the ISAG members come out there a couple of weeks ago and say that it was time to start talking about acceptable levels of risk. ISAG are saying that. Well, one ISAG. He was immediately turned on by the other ISAG members. But the fact that even some of their people... But that brings up uh, a question which I think maybe is worth pondering here. Are we actually living now in a in an unofficial zero COVID paradigm? Is that really what we're about? Some of the zero COVID ideas are far more extreme than we're going to be willing to do, or they require us to do things that we say we're going to do, but actually implement them in, you know, pretty much a steel fastened way. And we're never going to do that. So we do we do a bit of security theatre sometimes and we look like we're doing things that are in line with zero COVID, but we never do them to the actual degree that the zero COVID people push for. And the problem with that is that some of the stuff that they put forward that might work or that would work in conjunction with other things, there's no point doing it if you're not willing to do it at that level. It may in fact just simply be harmful because it it can't provide any beneficial output because it's not being done properly and you're just doing things to to appear to be doing them the mandatory hotel quarantine for instance yes if you want to do that but i i remember when we were saying that when we brought in the normal mandatory hotel quarantine that it wouldn't work and even if you wanted it to work you couldn't do it the way we were doing it no as it was structured it couldn't work so we do things like that that inconvenience people, that can cause you know, things like people missing funerals and the like, but don't actually produce any of the positive or potential positive benefits. So we just get this half-assed system, which inconveniences and belittles people, but doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to keep doing this forever, because we're not willing to actually make a decision. We're not willing to say there's an acceptable level of risk, and here's how we get to it. And here's how much the population needs to be vaccinated. And here's how we think we're going to have to deal with these things. And by the way, people are probably going to have to use an amount of common sense and discretion here. Here are the risk factors. Decide what you are willing to accept. And we'll deal with the high level public health issues like vaccination, the external border. And on the other hand, we're not willing to go into an Australian style lockdown. So we just get nothing. Like we're not even willing to deal with antigen testing. God, no, it's just, the antigen testing thing just is just painful. We we are going to, we're just going to stand there and we're going to dither and things are going to happen around us and we will hope that at some point it ends. Ideally without me, Al Martin, having to ever make an actual decision. You, you use the phrase acceptable risk. I'm wondering at this stage whether that in itself is a problem because people don't like the idea of acceptable attached to risk. Maybe we just sort of phrase it like unacceptable consequences of of lockdown. See, this is the thing. We let people say things like, you know, no death is acceptable, or the only acceptable level is no deaths, and things like that. And we let them say them because they're nice things, as opposed to saying the truth, which is, that's fucking stupid. That's not how this works. It's not how anything works. There is an acceptable level of death across society in nearly everything, 
we all just politely don't talk about it so no one has to feel like they're contributing to it. In the same way that, you know, before you have a sandwich, we don't make you go through an abattoir. <laughs> but it's still happening. We've all agreed it should happen, whether or not you think about it. We have this thing of letting people say very pleasant sounding things that make people feel good about themselves, but are totally at variance with reality because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. And that's basically this situation. No one wants to be the person to go, actually, there is an acceptable level of death and it's about here. And this is something that we factor into things all around us. It's something we factor into the way we... We build our houses and we make our furniture regarding whether or not, to the extent that it's fireproof or fire retardant. The example I've used before, anybody who listened to this before would have heard me, I'm sure, to ad nauseum. If you, there is no doubt that if you drive a small light, like little, like an old panda, as I used to, that, and you get involved in a car accident, the, the likelihood of you being injured or killed is far greater than if in, the, in exactly the same accident you were driving a, uh, a Mercedes 500. That is a safer car, just is. But we don't, we do, the consequence of that is not to say, well, it's no longer, no road debt is acceptable. We will have to get rid of all road debt because if that, then you wouldn't even drive the Mercedes 500. You wouldn't have people on the roads. You, would have, you wouldn't have people walking. We would, there are so many things we just wouldn't do. But we say, okay, this car meets the basic standards of safety that we expect from a car. We would advise you to drive a Volvo if you want something safer. If you can afford a Volvo, if you can't afford a Volvo, well, there you go. Facing up, to, it's a, that rather brutal fact is not nice. And you have seen, I've seen, a friend of ours was making a comment along these lines on social media and somebody said, yeah, I'd like you to go and stand in front of the family who has lost somebody from COVID and say that to them. Tell them that there is an acceptable level of death. You tell them that. I'd like you to see it. Which is, you know, to put it lightly, deeply unhelpful. Of course, if you lose a grandparent or a child to COVID, of course, for you, that's going to be a tragedy. If some fine, healthy, vigorous 15-year-old girl or boy contracts COVID and dies, that is going to be a tragedy for that community and particularly for that family. But that's true of measles as well, Gary. It's true of the flu. It's true of so many things in life. We don't expect life to offer us or the world to offer us 100% guarantees because it doesn't work. Life doesn't work if we do that. And I go back again to my point that this is a conversation that the government has to be having. There's no point in you and I saying this on the podcast. And there's no point in somebody saying it in Gript or somebody, the odd journalist maybe saying it in the newspapers because they're just going to be those odd anti-lockdown people. And by the way, neither of us are, I would regard, in the classic understanding, anti-lockdown. You know, it's not, that's a ridiculously oversimplified way of looking at it. The people who have to do this are the people who are running the show. They have to start talking about this. Take responsibility. They are the government. They have the office. Now they have to start dealing with the responsibilities that come with that office of telling the truth. No, I mean, on the lockdown itself. 
I think that my issue with the lockdown in general has been that things just happen. And there's no explanation for why they're happening. There's no there's no real sense that things need to be explained. There's sort of a hand-waving of, oh, cases went up, or, or this happened. But no, like, detailed explanation of why things are happening and what the alternatives were and what's happening going forward or what we can expect. I mean, I still remember when Neffet were asked about... Um, what kind of businesses were causing COVID outbreaks last year? And Neffet saying that they didn't have that data and they didn't think it was necessary as they were closing down businesses. Yes. And you did have to sort of go, well, if the data is, if we are having outbreaks in these businesses, surely the data would be useful because you could tailor a response. And they just didn't seem interested. No, because they're actually, well, we're closing them all down, so it doesn't matter. And... Bizarrely, part of that narrative also was a sense which has continued on, and this is true, I think, in the wider public, that it would be somehow unfair to close some businesses and not close others, which I always thought was a slightly, shall we say, dog-in-the-manger attitude, and certainly not one based on the perception of what was safe and what was unsafe, but rather, oh, well, you know, it wouldn't be fair to leave somebody open when other people are closed, so let's just close them all. I mean, full disclosure, I, from spending you know quite a deal of time looking at what Neffet are saying and the things they're releasing. I've never had a terribly high opinion of Neffet's, I wouldn't say ability, but perhaps say Neffet's focus and what Neffet thinks is important. I mean in relation to evidence before they do things. Neffet seem to sometimes just do things that they can't really explain. I think the highlight of that, and the thing that kind of just made me assume there's really no point trying to argue with Neffet or assume that Neffet can be uh, reasoned with in any way, was when they were invited to the Oireachtas Committee on Transport and they were talking about aviation and they were asked had they read the report by the government's chief scientific officer about antigen testing and they just said no. And then they... They, Tony Houlihan tried to say, well, I was out, so it was actually this chap's responsibility. And, you know, he didn't do it either. And you just had to sort of go, you were called to this committee to talk about antigen testing. And you didn't bother to read the report of the chief scientific officer about antigen testing. And the only reason I could say why you wouldn't do that is because that report came to a conclusion that you have publicly said you don't like already. Uh, you know what, they also should have been able to put their finger in the wind and realised that whatever had been the case for the last few months, the wind had turned decisively on the antigen testing. It was coming and they might as well just got on with it and try and worked out the best way to do it and the best way to facilitate it rather than just take a position where we said what we've said and we're not going to change your minds. It was actually, I mean, it was the sort of statement, the, 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 the point on, on the Ferguson report, that I think a different country would have led to people having to resign. Yeah, but Gary, I mean, let's not go. I mean, in a different in a different country, Gary, the, all of the regulations at, at a certain point would have come under such ridiculous scrutiny when there was an awareness within the press. If there wasn't amongst the general public, and there wasn't because they weren't being told about it, that we'd reached a point where the much vaunted indoor dining thing. 
that there were at, at that there were forty eight countries in Europe which was allowing which were allowing indoor dining, some with restrictions, many with restrictions, and there was one which did not, and that just makes you look like you think, oh, what the hell is going on in Ireland? Why? Every other country's chief medical officer and chief scientific officer and their version of Nefesh had all agreed, this is what we're going to do, this is safe. And for some reason we were, and there was no sense in the media of saying, well, Lance, what the hell is that? Why, 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 why are you writing everybody else is wrong? I mean, if there's going to be a vote on this at European level, Lance, you would be losing the vote and you'd be losing at 48-1. The thing about Neffet that has become clear over its existence is you can think about Neffet in two ways. You can think of it as a group primarily concerned with public health, or you can think of it as a group that may be concerned with public health, but is primarily comprised of civil functionaries and is more of a bureaucratic exercise than people may expect. But there's also there's also something here is because. It, it would be naive to ever have expected this was simply and purely going to be an exercise in public health. That this was some, there was, there was some wonderful, pristine, scientific, empirical approach which they would just apply. Nefes and the management of the pandemic is a, is a moment where science or medicine meets governance and they get married. And inevitably that's going to produce a hybrid, which is going to produce outcomes which are going to be at some level problematic because there's always in this situation always going to be an incentive to be wrong if you're going to be wrong to be wrong conservatively because if you're the guy who says it's all grand it's all great let's just let it all hang out remember not this last summer when there were people in oxford in that famous statement the great something statement by very very prominent immunologists and virologists, epidemiologists saying, you know, lads, it's over. It's finished. Let's just get back to normal. Now, if you if you had taken that that advice, and that particularly radical advice, then the chances are you were looking at some fairly negative outcomes, which you were going to be blamed for. So if you have a choice of being blamed for things being too restrictive, and but at the end of the day, you didn't have lots of people dead as opposed to being okay we think the science point is in this direction but if you get it wrong then you're going to see thousands of people die well then you're obviously going to be pushed in one direction you're never there's there's no way somebody's going to try and find this neutral via media which is just purely dictated by the science that's available to you you're always going to be affected or infected by the politics of it, because you're dealing with politicians, and the politicians are going to have an input into this as well. Listen, Gary, the fact is we are going to be having this conversation, I'm sure, once or twice before all of this is over. But it's going to be a beautiful day today, and I'm sure that the people want to be out and swimming in the sea and walking in the parks and having picnics and rubbing each other with, with suntan lotion, as long as they're obviously double vaccinated and from the same family. So I suggest that we allow, we, we release them into the wild. And we should be back on Friday. All the best.